Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 131. Okay, so I started another podcast today. How about I was telling somebody at work that I started a a new one and they were like, I feel like, how many like podcast rabbit holes do you go in a week? And I was like, not that many actually. Like, because it's more so like looking stuff up for our podcast than, you know, like I'll listen, like I have mine that I listen to on the regular and then I have like some that I sprinkle in that are about my stories. But anyway, so I started listening to Leah Remini's new podcast called Scientology Fair Game. I already know that Tiffany has now gone and looked it up and hit subscribe. Yes. Oh, and I want to say too, it's also Leah Remini because everybody knows her. Like it's like that show by Leah Remini, but it's like in the podcast, but no, it's Leah Remini and Mike Render. What this whole podcast is about is their quote fair game policy that basically meant that anyone who wasn't a Scientologist was basically like of the devil. So like if you if you said literally anything that was even neutral about Scientology, you were then fair game to be destroyed. Have websites about you. Slander, all the things. And so it's about that. Oh, cool. It's really good. And because Mike Render used to be like in charge of that. Yeah. God bless him. I just feel like he's like trying to right so many wrongs, you know? I know. I have such a hard time with him because I root for him and I like him on the show and everything. Mm -hmm. But then it's just like you hear all of this shit And yeah, he was over it. Some of this was his idea and, you know, all of this. And it's just like, I know people can move on, but that was torture and that's harassment and everything, you know. But you also have to appreciate the mindset that he was programmed to. Yeah. To be, to do those things, you know. Yeah. I mean, yes, each person's responsible for their own actions, but on the flip side, he was brainwashed. Yeah. But they, okay, confession, I'm only on episode zero. Like, it starts with episode zero. And there's, like, eight episodes out. I don't know if it ends at eight or if it's just uh, that's where they're at right now. But they slightly touch on the Danny Masterson stuff. Oh, shit. Tiffany is there. Look, she's not even listening to our episode anymore. (laughs) So, anyway, if you're into all of that, which you know I am, go check it out. That's awesome. I probably won't listen to it, but I will know every single detail because you and Tiffany will talk Mm -hmm. and I will listen. You know who else is checking out some really cool stuff? You mean they have really good taste in podcasts? Uh, yeah. Patreoners! That's right. Um, so, thank you so much, Lauren H. from Mississippi. I mean, represent. 
Oh, hey, neighbor. Ariana C. from California. Amanda N. from Nevada. Amber M. from Kentucky. Janina T. from New Jersey. And Naomi L. from New Hampshire. Thank y'all so freaking much for joining Patreon. And just as a little aside, we are coming up on October. So this is the time to join because October equals 31 nights of Halloween. And that means bonus content every single day. Yep. That was my quasi-Oprah. You you almost got it. We will be having stuff that comes out on the main feed and in the main Facebook group, but a lot of the stuff for the 31 Nights of Halloween is going to be for Patreoners and the Patreoners only Facebook group. Yep. And I mean, as a third party with no particular interest in the matter, it's some good shit, y'all. Yeah. So if uh, you want all the good good that these six people are getting, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Well, and see, if you join now, you can listen to all the backlog of all the other free stuff because you'll get that stuff too in October. Like we're still doing the monthly bonus episodes and everything. Oh, yeah. On top of all of the extra freebies for October, 31 nights of Halloween. Yeah. Yes. So every single month... Certain tiers on Patreon get a bonus episode every single week. Yep. I mean, shameless plug, but go check it out. (laughs) Okay, enough business. Uh, Let's get to it. For my story, we're going to go back to a time where you were just only about a month old. Oh, shit. Almost two. September 29th, 1985. Ooh, okay. That's my mama's birthday. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to rural Wyoming. Oh, fuck. Looking at you, Kelly. We're going to Lander, Wyoming. Like I said, it's rural Wyoming, small town. Not a lot of crime goes on. But, I mean, it wouldn't be one of my stories if there was not some sort of crime involved. Police get a call that there was a body spotted on the side of the road. When they get there, they see this body and it's completely nude they realize it's a female and it's not a kid but like it's not an adult and so of course that's like heartbreaking to these detectives because they start to realize okay she's she is young one of the investigators that was on the scene this was the first homicide that they had worked as a detective Mm. so it was just a it was just a hard one overall yeah when they look at the body Like I said, the body was nude. They weren't sure if there was any sexual assault, but they assumed, given that she was completely nude. And they noticed there were so many, like, scratches and just abrasions on her face, her forehead. And so the police were thinking it looked like maybe she had been dragged by her ankles. Mm. Mm-hmm. But there was no signs, there was no, like, gunshot wound, knife wound, anything like that. It doesn't take long for police to do some digging. And, you know, they're checking out the missing persons in the area. Again, it's a small town. There's not a ton of crime. And they find out that at one of the group homes in town, there is a 13-year-old girl who was reported as a runaway the night before. Oh, no, 13. 
All they know is that this teen was reported missing between 8 and 9 o'clock the night before, but there wasn't that much information, so they decided to take a ride over to the group home to see what was going on. When they get there, they find out that the 13-year-old girl who is missing is named Teresa Joanne Bradish, and she goes by Terry Joe. Police start to do some digging to figure out, okay, who is Terry Joe? Who do we need to contact? You know, why is she in this group home? That kind of thing. And it wasn't long before, you know, they got in touch with the family and her father, Terry Bradish, came to identify the body. She was so badly beaten up, but not like, like again, from like what appeared to be dragging and all of that, that the police tried their best to cover her up so that her father wouldn't have to see her, you know, so bad. But I mean, you know, she had a lot of cuts on her face too. Mm. And so, you know, they covered up with the sheets, showed the father who lost it. I mean, bawling, crying. That's his child. You know, yeah. oh my gosh, I cannot even imagine. And he identifies the body being Terry Joe. Now, like I said, police have to go, okay, who is Terry Joe? Why was she in a group home? What was her life like? Who were her friends? All the things. Well, Terry Joe had been living in this group home for about five months. Her parents had gotten divorced when she was pretty young, and she had a hard time dealing with the divorce. She ran away a lot, so there was always this back and forth of, you know, her running away, trying to get her back. I don't know what made her run away. I don't know what was happening at home. I don't know. But I do know that she was living with her father at the time. She was running away, and her parents just got to a point where they're like, we can't do it anymore. Yeah. And so they took her to juvenile court, and then the court put her in the group home. Mm. That just, like, breaks my heart. Like, how like how bad does it have to be for you as a parent to be like, no, I need help? Yeah. I didn't find really anything on her mother other than she was survived by, like, in obituaries and stuff. But I do know that she had a stepdad, that, you know, that it seemed like a good family life, but they just couldn't manage her. When they did the autopsy on Terry Joe, they found out that, like I said, she wasn't killed by a knife or a gun. She was actually strangled to death. And there were traces of semen indicating that she had been raped. Oh, gosh. She had trace amounts of alcohol in her system, but it wasn't like she had been drinking. Like, it was you know, maybe, maybe one glass. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, your girl was totally drinking at 13. Oh, for sure. Same. I mean, any, like, my 13-year-old nephews, I will kill you if you're drinking at 13. Oh, for sure. But, I mean, girl, Terry Joe, I get it. Mm-hmm. Slight bit of a soapbox. All of the stuff that I read that was talking about, there was the presence of semen, indicating like sexual activity but it would be like sexual activity if you will and i'm like no that's fucking rape like yeah like it was clearly rape it was not just like she had sex with somebody and then died a couple minutes later like um no and she's 13 so okay yeah but also like who the fuck rapes a 13 year old girl 
sadly a lot of people, and I hate them all. I know, and it's like, 13-year-olds are hard in that, like, not that this fucking matters, but, like, some of them look so young, and some of them, like, girl, you 21, because 13-year-olds did not look like that when I was 13. Yeah. But Terry Joe was a 1985 13-year-old girl, and she looked fucking 13. Yes. You know? Yes. She was not contouring her face. She looked like she was fucking 13. Yeah. It really is a difference of us then in the teenage yes. years and them now. I'm not saying it's wrong or anything. I'm just saying it it is totally different. My body different. Yes. And I'm sure some of it has to do with everything, like the hormones and all of that, because kids are getting like their menstrual cycles earlier and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure it has to do with that. But like, like they don't even have like the baby face anymore. Like it's totally like their body shapes, everything's so different. Mm -hmm. But Terry Joe was a 1985 13 year old girl. Yeah. When the investigators are at the group home, they're trying to figure out what happened before Terry Joe went missing. Because as far as the group home knew, she was a runaway. Yeah. And it's not uncommon for someone who's in a group home to run away for a few hours, run away for a day, go meet a boyfriend, go do this, go to whatever, you know, because they don't want to live by the rules. And I mean, sometimes in group homes, it tends to be more troubled teens. Yeah. Not to sound like a 75-year-old <laughs> troubled teen, but yeah. you get the point. Well, and she, like, running away was her... M.O., yeah. Yeah. Detectives talked to the counselor that was working that night because in a group home, especially for teens, there's always somebody, like, on duty. There's always someone there that's making sure that people are doing their curfew and their chores and all that. And at this group home at this time, remember, 1985, it was co-ed. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So, you know some shenanigans were happening up in there. Mm -hmm. The night that Terry Joe went missing, they were having their movie night. They were all sitting around the TV watching them, you know, watching their whatever they were watching. And Terry Joe got a phone call. She talks on the phone for a little while. And when she comes back, she is so freaking excited. She was like, oh my gosh, my dad's going to come visit me. Like, that was him. He says he's going to come visit me tomorrow. Like, oh my God, I'm so excited. And, you know, she just, like, couldn't sit still because she was so excited. And she was like, can I go outside and just feed the horses some apples? Because they had, like, a barn, all the horses and things. So she takes a few apples, goes out to the barn, and that's the last time she was seen. Golly. So police are trying to figure out what happened between the phone call from her dad and going out to the barn to feed the horses to her completely disappearing until her body was found the next morning. Yeah, God. that sucks that, like, the last thing was such a, like, a happy thing, so no one thought anything of it, you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, she's really upset. Someone should go check on her. Right. You know, it's like, no, she's celebrating. She's fine. She's so excited. She was like, I can't sit here and watch the movie, you know? Yeah. Well, about 15 or 20 minutes after she went outside, they were like, well, she's not back. I'm going to go check on her. I mean, no, she wasn't, like, upset or anything, but still, like, come back and watch the movie. Like, you just wanted to go feed them. Like, come back. Yeah. So some of the kids go out there with the counselor slash group parent. And when they go out there, like, she is nowhere to be found. And so that's when they realize something's going on. Police interviewed some of the other kids that lived in the group home. 
And they said when they went outside to try to find her, they did see a car pulling off in the distance. And they knew that it was a car, like not a truck or an SUV, but a car that had square taillights, not circles. Well, I mean, that could be freaking any car. You know what I mean? It doesn't narrow it down that much. Yeah. After police interviewed the kids and they found out, like, okay, she had gotten the call from her dad, the next step was to go back to Jerry and be like, hey, why didn't you, know, why didn't you tell us about the call? Yeah. They bring him in to interview him. And when they say, like, hey, like, how did she sound when you talked to her on the phone? Did she mention anything? He's like, what the, what are y'all talking about? Oh, gosh. And they're like, well, they said that you called her and said you were coming to visit her the next day. And that she was super excited. And that's when she went outside just to like, whatever. He was like, no, I haven't seen her in months. Like, I didn't call her. And so the police are like, fuck, okay, but, you know, let me just check. Can I, can we look at your phone records? And he's like, absolutely, you know, here they are. Only, you know, yeah. it's 1985, you can't do that, but yeah. absolutely, you know. So at this point, police are thinking, okay, it had to have been like a friend, a boyfriend, somebody that called her and said, hey, come outside, like, I'm yeah. going to come get you. We're going to go ride around. We're going to do whatever, you know. And she was, like, super excited. But, like, you can't tell that to your counselor sitting there. So you go, that was my dad, and he's coming to see me tomorrow. I'm excited. Can I go outside? You yeah. Know? But police do their due diligence, and they check the father's phone records, and he didn't call her. Police look at the phone records for the group home, and the phone number that did call was untraceable. Oh, my gosh. So, their best guess was that it came from a payphone in town. So, now it's like, okay, that could have been anybody who called her. The police talked to, again, her father, people at school, teachers, people in the group home. And then they started hearing a name. And this guy was young, had lived in the group home, and had recently actually been kicked out of the group home so he had some issues with anger and he kind of had taken a liking to terry joe but here's the kicker he was actually sleeping with terry joe's roommate and so it was like drama and that's part of like kind of what got him kicked out just like his bouts of anger and, you know, yelling and all that stuff when he would get, like, called out on, hey, you're my boyfriend, we're fucking, why are you hitting on Terry Joe? Yeah. But also, like, can you imagine that had to have been awkward for Terry Joe and mm. the roommate? But, I mean, from what I understand, Terry Joe was eating it up. Like, she liked him, too, you know? Mm-hmm. So police were like, okay, well, maybe he called her, and she's like, oh, my God, okay, okay, can't tell my roommate. Gotta go, feed the horses, Bye. They tracked him down, and he was at his father's house. He had an ironclad alibi, which is why I'm not saying his name, because whatever. He and his father had been home. He had been sick. Like, it wasn't him. So now they're like, fuck, okay, back to square one again. Then police got to thinking. Again, rural Wyoming, one more time for the people in the back, not much crime. 
But 19 months before Terry Joe was murdered, there was another female that was pretty similar, had been strangled, was found nude, but was buried, but on the road. So the difference being Terry was just kind of out in the open. So the police are like, well, I mean, is this, is this who did it? Like, is this like a serial killer? But it didn't pan out because they ended up figuring out that the person who murdered the girl 19 months earlier was actually one of her customers at the diner that she was a waitress at. And he, just like the previous guy, rock solid alibi, it wasn't him. So it was just coincidence that they had a similar dumping and that kind of thing. One thing I didn't say earlier was not long after they found the body, they had had someone report some clothing. And along the road where Terry Joe had been dumped, they found her clothing. And how it was positioned and where it was, it looked like someone driving away from dumping her had just like thrown pieces of her clothing out the window like at various times. So... They're looking at her clothes, seeing if there's any evidence. And really, the only thing they have is the semen. But again, 1985. And if this was a Forensic Files episode, insert, DNA wasn't very well, you know, known or whatever. Yeah. Not long after Terry Joe's funeral, one of the boys living in the group home goes to the counselor and he says, okay, so when police asked me about her murder, I lied. I told him I didn't know anything, but like it's eating me up. I'd know something. And so the counselor is like, you have to go see police. Like, let's go. Yeah. Well, when he gets there, he tells police that he was scared to come forward before because he was scared he was going to be murdered too. According to him, the reason that Terry Joe had been murdered is because she had been at the wrong place at the wrong time and saw him and another guy unloading guns that they were selling. Oh. And they were selling these guns for this new gang that was coming out of Dallas. So this gang, you know, police were like, okay, well, we've never heard of this gang, but shit, that stuff changes all the time. You know, there's all the time a new gang propping up. They said that the gang was called Underground for Murder and that the whole point of it, they were running guns. And like I said, she saw them unloading it, knew where they hid stuff, knew where they were, you know, all the things. And so the two brothers that were the lead of the gang found out and did away with her, you know, made her an example. Police interview him for hours and his story starts making the police go, wait, what? That didn't make sense. You know, and so they're like, okay, let's put this kid on a lie detector. Like, let's polygraph yeah. him. Let's see what's going on. And when he was having the polygraph done is when he was like, okay, 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 okay. I lied. I made it all up. <laughs> like, there's not, there's no gang. I just wanted the attention. Like, I actually don't know anything about her death. Yeah, because underground for murder does not sound like a gang. But also, fuck this kid, though. I mean, like, got the police's hopes up, got wasted so much manpower. And, you know, I mean, it's like 
they they wasted at least a whole day on this yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. After police put that lead to bed, there was nothing. And weeks turned into months that turned into years. And police were no closer to finding who killed Terry Joe. In 2006, there's a prosecutor that is working a case for someone who is about to be sentenced for a rape and murder that happened in 1985. And at the time, he lived kind of close to Terry Joe. And so this prosecutor was like, man, there's some similarities into this. Have you run the rape kit from Terry Joe's? Have you run that DNA? And the police were like, what? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, they've heard of it. You know what I mean? But yes, they're like, I know what? No, of course I haven't. And so they're like, well, you got the rape kit, right? So detectives take the sample take it to the crime lab, and they're like, Detective Captain Benson, put a rush on it. You know how she would always be like, this is mm-hmm. important, put a rush on it. Well, it was a few days later, and the detective gets this call from the lab, and they're like, okay, we didn't get any hits in the database for like the state or the national database, but we think we found something. And they're like, well, okay, what? You know, what? And they say, so when we developed the profile of the DNA, you know, because you have to, like, compare it to, to Terry Joe's to make sure, like, okay, that's the, not the victims, that's, you know, the perpetrator. And they go, um, she was related to him. <gasps> no. And so they're like, wait, what? Oh, my gosh. So this is literally 20 years after the murder and this is the biggest break they've had in the case yeah i was just thinking like you said i was two months old and in 2006 i was about to graduate college yeah like that is crazy and so the police of course are like are you sure a familial match and they're like there's a 99.8 percent chance that this is a family member Oh, my gosh. And so the police are like, okay, well, the person she was closest to was her father, but he lived in Texas. But he did get here pretty fast. Ooh. So in 2007, detectives take off down to Texas, meet up with some of the Texas Rangers, and they start following Jerry Bradish to see if they can get some of his DNA for comparison without having to have a warrant, i.e. wait for him to spit on the sidewalk, throw out a cigarette butt, throw out his trash, anything. Yeah. It took a week of them watching her dad till he finally took some trash out. And as soon as he took the trash out, he went to work. So police were like, doop, 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 doop. went and dug, got the trash bags out, put it in the car took it back with them to rural Wyoming. They're digging through the trash when they get there and they, they're like, okay, what can we use for DNA? And they know that at the time Jerry was living with his then wife. He had been married like five times, but he was living with his wife at the time and it was just them in the house. And they found in the trash, some leather work gloves and they were men's leather work gloves. So there was a very reasonable assumption that they were Jerry's. So they sent those off for comparison. 
And when the DNA came back, it was a match. No. I mean, I'm happy that they're finding this, but her father? Yes. So, you know, DNA isn't enough to convict. So they have to, they're going to try to get him to confess. Police go back down to Texas and they contact Jerry just under the pretense that, hey, we're in town on another case, but like while we're here, you have you you know anything else? Like, can you meet with us? Like, you know, we really want to still solve Terry Joe's murder. Like, can we just chat again? And he's like, Yeah, absolutely. So they got this hotel and set it all up with cameras and everything. He didn't know he was being recorded. When he came in, they read him his Miranda rights, but they said, like, look, this is just our new rules because, you know, stuff getting, you know, whatever. We read everyone their Miranda rights when we start asking them questions. And he was like, oh, cool. Okay. So he's sitting down and they start their interrogation as police do. Get to know you kind of thing. Make you comfortable. Like on the video, it's like, what type of fish do you try to catch? And he's like, listen them off. They're shooting the shit. Blah, 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 blah. They are trying their best to like not cue him in that no, you're a suspect, this is actually interrogation because they didn't want him to ask for an attorney, which, get a fucking attorney. But they're doing their best to get a confession. When they're doing their get-to-know-you, building rapport bullshit that they have to do to get a suspect comfortable, Jerry looks very confident. Like, he's, you know, just hanging with them, talking. And then they say, so we have this thing, you know, DNA and this is what it is and it matches you and they say like you could like see him like immediately change like he starts looking away from them you know losing they lost eye contact you know like you can tell he's like fuck 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 you know yeah anxiety through the roof all the things so police now that they've like hey we got this like they start kind of backing him into a corner. They start saying, like, no, we know you did this. We know that you took her from the barn. We know that you raped her. We know that you dragged her out of your car and put her body out there naked for everyone to see. Like, we know it was you. They're like, you're the one that had to do it. That's right, isn't it? And he said, yeah. And so the police are like, This is it. We've got him to that ledge where he's started to say things. We just got to get him to keep talking. And they do. Jerry admits to picking Terry Joe up from the group home. And he says that he took her on, you know, just like a trip. And like she was so excited to be with him that she didn't even notice like he wasn't taking her. Like he was like going out of town, basically. He had brought some wine along with him. And pulled off to a little side, stopped, got in the back seat with her because he told her like, oh, there's too much stuff in here. Like you got like on the passenger seat, you got to sit in the back. So he got back there with her and he says that she drank the whole bottle of wine, which we know is a lot. That is him trying to minimize his role in this. Mm -hmm. And even if she did drink the whole bottle, it doesn't say anything about her and it doesn't give you the right To do anything. Well, he ends up telling police that he had bought that bottle of wine like four weeks ago. So this was planned. Yeah. So the police were like, 
I mean, like, have you tried this before with her? And he's like, like said that he had driven there a few times and then like changed his mind and went home. He tells police that while they're in the back seat, that he well, has sex with her. He's not mm-hmm. going to say, I raped her. Mm-hmm. And he said that he's the one that, like, took her clothes off, all of that, which gave me the heebie-jeebies. When he said that, I was like, mm-hmm. of, like, the parts of his video that I watched. How old is he? I mean, at this point, I mean, this is in 2006, and this is 20 years after her murder. No, I meant at the point. She's 13. How mm-hmm. old is he? Oh, I don't fucking know. 30-something? I don't know. I was just wondering. 40s? I don't fucking know. Yeah. I'm just thinking, like, how how can someone who is a father be like, yeah, I had sex with my daughter? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? And not... He's... He was... I don't know why I said 30, because that's bad math. Who am I, you? He, um, he had to be late 40s, early 50s. Like, because if you see the pictures of them from when she was a kid, like, he's older. Mm. But you, you know what I mean? Like, ugh. Yes. Like, I get that he thinks, like, he doesn't think he raped her or whatever. But, like, you had sex with your daughter. Mm -hmm. Well, at her autopsy, Terry Jo had red fibers under her fingernails from where she had, like, tried to, like, claw, like, protecting herself or preventing herself from being dragged, something. And... His seats? From the floorboard of his car. Ah. Which police found out that his wife at the time had this the car that she owned make model it had the square lights it had red carpet so police actually went and found that car wow they tracked down its cell and found it to compare those fibers wow well basically what he did he tried to get her drunk i don't think that she would drink it he raped her Dragged her out of the car, he said, by her ankles, Mm. strangled her, and then dragged her off and left her body out because he wanted someone to find her because he did all of this because he needed the $10,000 life insurance policy he had on her. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? No. He was broke, needed money, and... I guess $10,000 is what a 13-year-old's life is worth to him, his daughters. Okay. I know you always say I get stuck on the wrong Mm -hmm. thing, but okay. So say that's not a bad plan, but it's a terrible plan and whatever, you're not. Why would you have to have sex with her? Right. It's like you could have done... Like if you wanted to kill her... Just kill her. Yeah, you could have killed her and made it look like someone else did it without raping her. Yes. So, which brings me to why did she run away to begin with? Mm Mm-hmm. Some things said that it's possible that she had been being molested by her father, like, for years. And that's why she was running away and all of that. And the fact that she was so excited to see him, but then also, like... He had to have said, hey, well, come out and see me right now. And she's like, I can't leave. We're, you know, you, you know this is how it went down. He called her, and she's like, I can't leave. It's movie night. I'm not allowed to go out. And he's like, well, just tell him you're going to feed the, the horses or something. She's like, okay. Goes to see her dad because she wants to please him. Yeah. It's someone that she has this, 
you know, we, we've seen it before. The dynamic of this of a relationship of someone who has been sexually assaulted basically their whole lives by their parent. They still, like, want to please them and do mm-hmm. things, you know. And so it makes total sense that she would leave from the group home and go get in his car. And then, oh, he tells me to sit in the back seat. Okay. But then he, like, what, like, maybe tries to force feed her the alcohol. I mean, like, I don't know what happened from there. And maybe when he raped her, she was like, fuck, this is, he's still doing it, you know? And that's when she fought back and got the fibers in her fingernails and and all of that. But it doesn't fucking matter. Eventually, he pled guilty to first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison with added time for second-degree sexual assault against a minor. So he is not getting out. He is a piece of shit that is going to be in jail for the rest of his life. Wow. Wow. For a 10 thousand dollar life insurance policy wow this is why i couldn't be police because i would want to slap him and be like can you come up with a better excuse for that then because even if that's the truth why did you rape her Mm -hmm. like don't tell me that's the only reason then Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like just lay it all out there then like you're a fucking piece of scum so lay it out there you wanted the ten thousand dollars but you also wanted yes whatever you know what i mean like But just don't say, I had to kill her because I'm poor and I needed the money. Like, no, no, no. You were all, like, I don't know. It's just nefarious. All of it's nefarious. And, oh, God. I know. I hate a liar. Like, I hate a liar. (laughs) And don't, like, I killed her because, you know, like, oh, you didn't. You killed her because you raped her. And she probably fought back harder this time than she ever has because she had been in this group home for five months and had probably started breaking those ties from you and Mm -hmm. started healing and realizing how things, how shitty things were and dysfunctional. And she was getting more confidence and all the things. And so she probably allegedly fought harder this time. Mm -hmm. And so you killed her. Yep. Wow. I also, like I said, it kind of goes back to, I don't know anything about the mom. Like, I feel like there's, there's not a piece missing of the story, but it's like, I want to know more about Terry Joe and her past. And yeah, again, what leads a 13 year old child to a group home? You know, yeah. again, she ran away for something from something to something for some reason. Yeah. And also, I just, again, this is why I can't be a cop. Because I'd be like, Mm $10,000? You're poor and you wanted $10,000? That's what your daughter's life was worth to you? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not condoning criminal activity because I'm a cop. But, like, you can rob a jewelry store and get one ring that's more than that. Also, not just because she's a... uh (laughs) Pretend cop in this situation. We don't condone no, criminal activity. We don't do it none of the time. But sorry, I was I was in my role play. Yeah, then. yeah, no, no. But you I'm know, out of character. You are in your character. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I really couldn't because I could not hold my tongue. Because you know my face. I'd be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'd pull a Kanye. I'm gonna let you finish your confession. But first, this is all the things you did wrong. I mean, the amount of like tact that an investigator has to have, like to be able to do these to just to be able to shoot the shit with someone that, you know, raped and murdered their daughter, but you got to get them to trust you so that they'll confess so that they can go to prison for the rest of their lives. Like, 
Whew. Oh, gosh. Oh, and you know what? They talked about, because there were a couple of shows. There was, now I can't remember one of them. I know it was Unusual Suspects on ID, but there was another show that featured this case. Fuck, I can't remember. Anyway, and at one point, one of the detectives was talking about, like, how hard it is learning interrogation to allow there to be pauses. How it's like, no, give them a minute. Let them be uncomfortable with the pauses. Yep. And like, no joke, that works. It does. Because, I mean, even just in your everyday, if you think, let's say for people who work in the medical field, you think someone's malingering, like, give them a minute. Well, for the people that don't have a thesaurus, what does that mean? Like, like... (laughs) Faking their illness, like faking it. Okay. Like, oh, that hurts so bad. But then they're yeah. like doing jumping jacks. Yeah. One thing is like ask them or say, tell me about it instead of asking specific questions. Right. And then just sit there. Yeah. Give them the pause. Just sit there. And people, people will tell you mm-hmm. what you need to know. Yeah. Anytime people go into too much detail, mm-hmm. they fuck themselves up. It doesn't matter, like, what it is, anything. It could be your five-year-old telling you that they didn't spill that red high C on the floor, but they did. Right. Apparently, in my scenario, the five-year-old is back in 1985 because I don't think high C still exists. (laughs) Oh, yes, it does, girl. I got some at KFC the other day. I'm surprised you weren't at Popeye's. Donna should own stock in that thing. Look, my dad needs variety. I don't eat the KFC, but it comes with a drink. Usually, I don't get the drink. But they had high C, and so I was like, hmm, I'll try that. (laughs) Well, I've been recently back obsessed with Scott Peterson's case Mm -hmm. and Lacey Peterson, and that was something that the, like, investigators and stuff on the Hulu special did say. I think it was a Hulu special. I don't know. It might have been one of the YouTube videos I rabbit holed down. Mm -hmm. But they said, like, they tried to give him the, those spaces, you know, mm-hmm. to, like, keep talking, do it. But he didn't, you know. Like, yeah. he, he stuck to his story. Everything was that, you know. And so it was like they tried, but it was like the staring game and they blinked. Because yeah. it's like, well, all right, here's another question, you yeah. know, because he's not me. Like, well, one – give me enough space and you'll be here. You'll be like, uh, what's that guy? Well, I was going to say, we'll be like right now. Yeah. Giving you space and. Uh-huh. <laughs> you don't have to give me space. I take it. Yes. Yes, you do. And look, you want, Donna hates a fucking silent pause. That girl will say, um, like she got something to say and she doesn't. She just is trying to occupy the silent space. Mm-hmm. But see, Carrie loves the silent space because she'll say, yeah, see, I was going over there and to, <laughs> and I'm like, to what? What did you say? And she was like, oh, I finished it in my head. And I'm like, what did you do? I am nosy and you did not finish. Like, I am like looking at her bug-eyed, like, <laughs> to what? Because, and you know, it's because I was an asshole when I was a kid. And one of my favorite aunts, too, like, I loved her. She was so cool. But she would do that. She would just stop and not say, like, the last word of a sentence. And I'd be like, finish your sentence in my head. And now I'm fucking her. She does it all the time. It's so bad. We were doing thank you videos. And she literally, like, took out articles of words. And I was like, uh. 
She was like, no, I said it. And I was like, no, you didn't. She said, I said it in my head. <laughs> like, I was like, nope, you did your thing again. Where <laughs> You just were, no. Well, at least Donna speaks my language. Y'all do too. If you listen and you speak my language. All right, well, let's hear your language. <laughs> right? All right. Well, when booking a vacation, you look for an idyllic destination because you crave an escape from your everyday life. I mean, location, location, location. Yeah. Nope, that's real estate. Well, I mean, it's also at the top of everyone's list to have a breathtaking view and beautiful scenery. So, location, location, location. And that's just what you get when you book a stay on Norfolk Island. It's a little over 850 miles off of Australia's east coast and is known as one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's tranquil, the people are friendly, like overly friendly, and it truly has something for everyone. But hidden in all the beauty of the island, there's a darkness. A disturbing part of Norfolk Island's history that refuses to stay buried. The island was originally settled by the East Polynesian, but there was no one on the island when Captain James Cook stepped foot on December 10th, 1774. He named the island after the Duchess of Norfolk, whose name was Mary Howard. He was like, uh, that's plain. I'm just going to use Norfolk. Fast forward to 1776 and the American Revolutionary War had created a problem. Well, several for the British. But the one we're discussing is that their prisons started to be overcrowded due to the fact that they're no longer relocating the criminals to the 13 colonies. As a solution, they began sending criminals to different parts of what is now known as Australia. Well, Norfolk Island was used for this purpose as well, but then Catherine the Great decided to no longer sell hemp to the British. And basically, 99.9999% of their hemp and flax for the Royal Navy that they used for cords and sails came from Russia. Well, Norfolk Island just happened to be a place where New Zealand flax grew. And so they were like, whoop, this is going to be top priority. So in January of 1788, a party of 15 convicts and seven freed men take control of Norfolk Island, and then they start preparations for commercial development. And all this is happening while it's still being used as a prison too. And as early as 1794, the Lieutenant Governor of New South Wales voiced that he believed that the island should no longer be used as a penal settlement. It was too remote, the costs were too high to maintain, etc. So most people left, but around 200 people remained to kill off stock, destroy buildings, all of that. And after that, Norfolk Island was left uninhabited for a while. But as most things do, things changed. Something that was viewed as a negative had now been turned to a positive, and that was the isolation of the island. In 1824, Thomas Brisbane, the governor of New South Wales, was instructed by the British government to send the worst of the worst criminals to Norfolk Island. Basically, it was people who were sentenced to death, and so they went over to a part of Australia. But then they committed crimes while being locked up, 
And instead, they were shipped to Norfolk to live out the rest of their lives. But as we'll find out later, some of these people wish they never stepped foot on that island. Well, shit. Foreshadowing the foreskin. (laughs) I wish I could remember what episode that came up in. I know. Like, I don't even remember why we said it. Girl. Horny. (laughs) Party of two. (laughs) Thomas Brisbane assured the British government that, quote, the felon who is sent there is forever excluded from all hope of return. And it didn't take long for the island to become notorious. Guards were known to be sadistic. Murder and rape were prevalent on the island as well. And most described Norfolk Island as being hell on earth. One of the governors who passed through Norfolk Island, he commanded that every man should be worked in irons, that the example may deter others from the commission of crime to hold out Norfolk Island as a place of the extremist punishment short of death. Shit. Yeah. He wasn't playing. No, he was not. And remember how overcrowded prisons were an issue before? Well, they became an issue again. And so instead of only having the worst of the worst, they started to have petty crimes mixed in now. And even children were being sent to the island. What? Kids? Yeah, like juveniles. That's so fucked up. Yeah. And so, as you can imagine, the violent criminals preyed on them. When you look at everything, only about 15% of the inmates had done anything deserving of the death sentence that got them there. Wow. Every prisoner was forced to wear heavy chains for a lot of their time there. The food quality was terrible, but the real problem is there wasn't enough So the shortage of food caused a lot of chaos. And they were worked really hard. And so the little bit of food they had really didn't last long in their bodies. And also they were beaten whenever the overseers felt like it. Like I said, the work was hard from sunrise to sunset. And the inmates did it all. Mainly farming for crops or construction and growing the settlement. There was this place called the Crank Mill, and it was labor, but also used as punishment. The heavily chained inmates would make it to the Crank Mill, and it basically took a shit ton of them to turn the wheels that would grind the corn. One description said, quote, The labor appears to be dreadfully severe. The yells and screams of unfortunate criminals as they heave at the cumbersome engine almost induces the belief that the spectator is listening to the cries of lost souls. Mm. And when you think about it, it's jail, so it shouldn't be great. But then when you think about only 15% had crimes that were supposed to be punishable by this place. And not to mention how many of all of them, including the 15% that had crimes, quote-unquote, punishable in that way, how many of them were actually innocent? Right. Lawrence Frayne was sent to Norfolk Island when the colony he was imprisoned at before grew tired of him escaping or trying to escape. So he was sent to Norfolk and there he was given 200 lashes as a punishment for one, breaking flagstone in the quarry and two, for calling the commandant in court a tyrant when he got his punishment. 
And so when they did the lashings or the flogging, they were spaced out. So Lawrence got 50 lashes at a time. So 50 on his back and then four days when they were like partially scabbed over, he would get 50 more in the same spot. Oh my God. Yeah. And then on the eighth day, he got some, well, he got 50 on his butt. And then on the 12th day, he got 50 more on his butt where those scabs were going over. Can you imagine trying to sit down? Oh, no. And you know you're in jail, so there is no comfortable place anywhere. And he's having to work hard Mm -hmm. through all of this. You want to know how bad that sweat probably burned going in those cracks? Oh, my God. Swamp ass is, like, punishable. Like, that is a punishment. And then to put that on top of open skin? Oh. Uh -uh. Mm Mm-mm. Literally pouring salt in the wound. Mm Mm-hmm. Ugh. Okay. Well, there was another prisoner named Thomas Wright, and he actually lived to be 105 years old. Damn! But he was older when he got there. He was, I want to say, in his 60s when he was first incarcerated, and then 80 when he got there. But according to one story, he received 100 lashes for slightly breaking one of the rules when he was in his 90s. I just think about a 90-year-old person, like, mm-hmm. getting a 100 floggings. Fuck them. Like, it's not just whippings. It's, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, my God. Like, it's not a paddling. That brings us to another prisoner named John Ryan. He was sent to Norfolk for 10 years for burglary. And the evidence really wasn't there. There, The case was pretty shoddy. And, of course, John Ryan said he was innocent. Since he maintained his innocence, that angered the guards and the authorities. And so they would instigate things and push him to the point of him fighting back, talking back, etc. And so then he was instantly clubbed, beaten, or he would be forced in solitary confinement as punishment. And by the time that John Ryan had been on the island for nine months, he had received four floggings, which roughly totaled 250 lashes. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And solitary confinement totaling 70 days. Shit. And that was five times in solitary confinement. Mm. Sometimes they held him in a place called the nunnery. And it was described as a filthy 8 by 8 cell where usually 10 prisoners were squeezed in there at one time. And sometimes the prisoners couldn't even make it but a couple of hours because the air was so putrid Mm. and they couldn't breathe or they were being crushed by others, etc. Like they had to be taken out. Oh, my God. There was a man who was given a tour of the island and he said that when they opened the door to the nunnery, just like a rush of that hot, nasty air came out and it physically made him sick. Mm. And he said that what he could see were the criminals were basically nude because they had ripped their clothing off and were all sweating and there were puddles of sweat under them. Oh. Yeah. So can you imagine the smell? No. Oh. The feeling? Oh, God. Oh. Mm-mm. Nope. Mm-mm. Also, John Ryan died on Norfolk Island. He was left chained in a really harsh way on the floor in a cell 
number 13. And on the fifth day, he was found dead in his cell, still chained up, and his mouth was opened with a spring gag in it, which I believe is a torture device that they would use. There's an article that was written in 1971 in the Times where a Dr. William Olathrope, question mark, question mark, I don't know him, don't know how to pronounce his name. He talks about the aftermath of an attempted prison break. And he said like he would never forget what happened after that. And this is his quote. Those who were to live wept bitterly. Those doomed to die dropped to their knees and thanked God that they were to be delivered from so horrid a place. Wow. I'm like you with that other story. All I can say is, wow, wow, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. All I keep picturing is like Shawshank Redemption, you know? Like when he was, when he was in the solitary for so long for like, well, whatever he did. And then they gave him like three more weeks or something Mm -hmm. like that. Shit. I know. Oh gosh. I don't, oh. Such a good movie. So good. Well, conditions were so bad that the inmates created what was called the lottery. And what it was is where four inmates would draw straws and one would be murdered, one would be the murderer, and then two would act as witnesses at the trial, you know, so it would have a conviction. The victim would obviously lose their life, but escape life at the prison and without the fear of going to hell for dying by suicide, as, you know, many think that you will, the murderer would be executed. And so also, hopefully, like, they're hoping that they would escape life still at the prison. And then the witnesses would have to testify at the trial in Sydney. So that would be getting off the island, which could possibly present an opportunity to escape and also just to have a day of rest. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, ultimately, isn't that what we all want? (laughs) Except for you. Work makes me happy. But can you imagine, like, it being so bad in there? Me, you, Colby, and Tiffany are like, all right, let's draw straws. This is where, you know, like, and you're hoping that you get to be murdered or the murderer. Like, Mm -hmm. those are the coveted positions. That's so sad. And then, I mean, I would think usually these would be friends, like how our scenario would be. And so the two witnesses would have to witness their friend killing their other friend. Mm. So obviously the island does have that darkness there. Can you imagine walking through the cemetery there And looking at all the prisoners' graves, and most of them having executed written on their headstone. Mm. And you don't know if that prisoner thought that execution was a punishment or freedom. There's a place that many tourists visit, and it's called Bloody Bridge. It's a stone bridge that was built by the prisoners, and according to legends on the island, it got its name from the prisoners murdering the guard who was their overseer, but he was known to be a very brutal guard. And so what they did is that they concealed his body in the stone, like in the bridge. So like no one would be none the wiser because no body, no crime. However, 
The blood seeped out and stained the stonework red. Oh my God. Yeah. In the 90s, there was an Australian documentary called The Extraordinary. And they had a little segment on Norfolk Island. One resident who has lived there on the island for over 50 years said that over 50% of the residents have seen or heard a ghost. Damn. Yeah, so it's known as one of the most haunted islands. That's a pretty high percentage. Yeah. However, I couldn't find a lot on the internet. I feel like there's probably more in books, but I couldn't really find a lot of books. And, you know, so it was just, it was one of those things. So I was like, all right, all right, you're really haunted, but you have to visit to find out maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. There's this place called Quality Row, and it's where most of the official houses are. And it's been a place where many people see soldiers in dated but colorful uniforms. And ladies who are in gowns, they are said to, you know, go and revisit their old homes. But then also the sound of chain gangs Mm. are said to, you know, just kind of echo down the street at times. Because that is what they had. Because they were on working crews a lot because they built the island. Mm-hmm. You know, all the buildings, all the stuff. So they had chain gangs. They had all all of that. And fuck it by hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The crank mill, as you can imagine, is a place of despair and overwhelming heaviness that people feel when they go there. And nothing to do with the prison, but the Kingston Hospital, which was built in 1835, it is reportedly haunted by some former patients, but I couldn't find any, like, just stories about which patients. I mean, is that a HIPAA violation? (laughs) (laughs) There's a part of the road on the way to the cable station where people say they've seen multiple ghosts before at the same time, almost like they were gathering there. And then another sighting is a figure just standing on the cliff and gazing out to the sea. But... If he's approached, he vanishes into thin air. And he's thought to be a ghost of an inmate who tried to escape by boat. That boat was to pick him up from that spot, but when the inmate was swimming to the boat, he drowned. Oh, God. Yeah. It's very like Alcatraz. Yeah. You know? Yeah. One of its spookiest locations is said to be the Heritage Hill, which is a boarding house and restaurant That's now turned resort. Because, again, it's very she-she there. You know, it is the All the rage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's supposedly really haunted in room five. And Maria Heaps, who was the building's original owner, is said to be the one who haunts that room. And people who've stayed there have heard loud bangs in the middle of the night And then other pranks, like the sheets being pulled, you know, different smells, that kind of thing have been reported, along with the sounds of phantom footsteps and that feeling that you're not alone. But again, almost all of that occur in or near room five. There's a place called Limerick Cottage that is in the Pine Avenue. Story goes that On certain nights every year, there's sounds of faint moans or strangled coughs as if someone is being choked. 
I don't know. It kind of goes back with like who lived in the house and like the lady and her husband who lived in the house. She supposedly died like 15 days after she gave birth. And so maybe they were saying that her husband killed her after that. I don't know. But it was like a long, long story. And I was like, I don't understand the correlation really. Like it was just a lot of names and then was like the ghost part. And I was like, I don't. Uh, okay, like I'll do the ghost part. <laughs> like yeah. I, I don't understand the background being there and it making sense, but okay. But her having a baby and her dying does play into this. Then there was this one time a lady who was staying at the cottage heard a child playing outside in the garden and then the child yelled, oh, look, come and look. And the lady said she thought the little girl was real until she looked closer and noticed that she had a floating movement and seemed to be luminescent. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that could have been the mother and the child. You never know. Like, that could be her being killed, the sounds, and that could be her daughter playing in the garden. At the government house, which was once the home of the prison commandants and now the resident of the Australian administrator, people hear sounds of doors being closed firmly at night, but then the doors are open in the morning. They hear other creepy sounds, you know, stuff going bump in the middle of the night. And also the cats around there will like raise their fur, like they're on attack mode Mm -hmm. and kind of stare into like a corner or whatever. And so it's like, what do you see? Because again, we all think or know that cats can see spirits. They sure shit can. Speaking of the government house, the current occupant, his name is Robert Dawkin. He says of his favorite ghost story, and he calls it the Phantom Violinist. And what he knows is that there was a prison commandant, so like a warden, and he had a beautiful young daughter, as, you know, all stories go, she wanted to learn how to play the violin. He brought in one of the inmates who was musically talented and knew how to play the violin to teach her. Well, the two fell in love. Mm. When basically the warden found out what had happened, his daughter was shipped back off to England and then... No one really knows what happened to the inmate. So today, what they say is that you can hear, like, some sad, like, violin kind of strings playing. Mm -hmm. And it's really only at night and just sometimes in the halls of the government house. And that's really all I could find about it. But I don't know. I mean, what more could you want? Idyllic place to go. Like, super beautiful Resort, I mean, luxury, super nice people, it's remote, you're isolated, all the things. And then at night, you could go on a ghost tour. True. Or if you stay in number five, you could have a ghost tuck you in, maybe. Mm -mm. It's like the end of Shawshank Redemption meets the whole part. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What's crazy is that your story had a a group home. Mm-hmm. And then mine was a prison. Yeah. And what's sad is that Terry Joe was there to be safe and to learn what she needed to learn and to grow to become a productive adult 
which is, you know, what prison's supposed to be, too. Mm-hmm. But that place was the point of no return. can't believe there were kids there. Yeah. Well, we want to know, would you go to the island? Yeah. And I want to know, did y'all see it coming that it was Terry Joe's dad? Like, kind of, but then also, no, you know? Yeah. Well, at first I was like, it was her dad. But then I was like, no, because he's like being helpful Mm -hmm. and, you know, like he seemed distraught and all of the things. And, And you know, the rape. Yeah, the rape. And then all the other, like, could be suspects mm-hmm. seem to fit the bill perfectly too. And so like, it's just so hard. And to do such a heinous crime for $10,000. Yeah. Well, and you know, usually it's like people who are close to the victim, like cover them up in some way mm-hmm. or, you know, something like that. And he didn't because he wanted the $10,000 and all of mm-hmm. that. But it's just like, so, you know what I mean? Like, I was trying to look for those clues, too, of if it was any anything, but no. Because he didn't love her at all. No. He couldn't have, because he wouldn't have been able to do that if he did. Right. Y'all, don't forget to subscribe, like, review all the things on all the podcast players. Send in your sinister sightings, aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get scared. scared.